Welcome back to the Santiago Boys. I'm Evgeny Marozov, and I'll be your host. In our last episode, we witnessed a massive strike that almost paralyzed the whole country. And we saw our own Santiago Boys using their cybernetic skills to make it go away. We also witnessed Salvador Allende preparing for a coup, a coup that he knows is coming. But the ray of cybernetic hope does appear on the horizon, a tiny one. The operations room, the centerpiece of Project Cybersyn, is almost ready. But could it save Allende's government? How? And what about Stafford Beer, the visionary behind it all? He doesn't know it yet, but he's about to become the target of vicious attacks in the media. They'll even accuse him of building a cybernetic big brother. All of this and more soon. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The strike may be over, but Allende still got a crisis on his hands. His nation is struggling, and he's looking for a way out. So he travels the globe, hoping to find some friends and funds. That's how he makes that stop at the old of Astoria and the United Nations. But despite that arousing speech in New York, it's mostly a dead end for Allende. Desperate, he flies to the Soviet Union. He's hoping for a lifeline of some kind. Perhaps the Soviets will understand Allende's plight. Don't they see that the US, the Cold War enemy, has been undermining the Chilean democracy for years? Can the Soviets see that Chile is just another version of Vietnam? Okay, a silent Vietnam, perhaps, as Allende once memorably put it. But still, all the suffering and all the concerted effort by the United States against it, surely there are similarities. The expectations for this trip do run very high. But will Allende find what he needs in Moscow? Will the Soviet Union bail him out? Or will he be disappointed there, too? As the Chilean journalist Alfredo Sepulveda notes, things don't go exactly as planned there. So he goes to the Soviets, and basically the Soviets tell him the hard truth. And the hard truth is that they don't believe in the project, that they think that the government was not going to last, and that there's no money for him. So Allende returns to Chile feeling bitter and disillusioned. I never imagined they would do this to me, he tells a collaborator, even describing Moscow's stance as a stab in the back. At long last, as he returns to Santiago, some good news finally awaits him there. The countdown to the launch of Project CyberSense operations room has now begun. It's almost ready. Perhaps it will help during a future crisis. No more cake, paper, and tape methods when managing the next strike. Whenever it comes, and come it will. At least that's what everyone in Santiago is thinking. The deadline for the room's opening approaches, and with it, the realization that it still doesn't have an address. Unfortunately, it seems like anyone with real estate space to spare also has a serious grudge against Allende. 
Predictably, Raul Espejo's telexes to Stafford are getting more frantic by the day. By then, Raul is the person coordinating all of CyberSyn's activities on the ground in Santiago. November 10th. The operations room is a puzzle. We have all its pieces ready, but problems arose with the structure. November 14th. Site we have selected failed completely. Owner refused to deal with government enterprises. It took her a fortnight to decide so. We are now looking for new site at the Catholic University campus. And then a miracle. Eugenio Ruiz Tagle, one of the Santiago boys from Corfo and a member of MAPU, the political party, discovers the perfect location for it. With his connections and a little bit of luck, Eugenio manages to persuade some right-wing building owners to lease it to Intac. Remember that name, Eugenio Ruiz Tagle. He'll have quite a tragic role in our story later on. As Stafford outlines his vision for the room, he's crystal clear about one thing. He wants it to feel more like a club than a boardroom. But his initial instructions leave Gibbon Siep a bit perplexed. He mentioned the term ops room and operations room. I did not know this team when at that time. In armies and generals, they have this operations room for um, devising how they want to attack and defend and so on. These connotations of the war environment, I did not like very much. So the British war room is one of the inspirations here. But it's definitely not the only one. It seems that Stafford also wants to mix it with a local version of the Athenaeum Club. We got the idea from Stafford Beer that he wanted a kind of club, comfortable atmosphere. Okay, so they made this kind of seats, plastic seats, with cushions, and um, Swivelch uh, could turn around. He did not want a table there inside. He wanted a meeting of people which always face each other. While at the table you have all a priority position on the top of the table, and in a circle you never have it. According to Gabriel Rodriguez, the operations room is a work of art in its own right. The place was very elegant. It was something smooth, like a church you entered, it was silent. Uh, we were not accustomed to that. This was something more European. For Gabriel, the operations room is like a cybernetic playground for the grown-ups complete with buttons that are both mysterious and mesmerizing. You have this triangle, a circle, and a square, and a star. And my sensation when I was sitting there, I said, okay, this is like a game or something like for children. But don't be fooled by this high-tech facade. This room is more old school than artisanal cheese. Unfortunately, we did not have the uh, digital resources available at that time. See, so everything had to be done by hand. Crafts procedure. Stafford gives his blessing to the finished product. So there they are, no paper, there's an ashtray, uh, there is room for a drink, and there is a place for a creative session. This room is in fact full of wonders. People in the room are meeting to discuss, with everything moving on it, flashing lights, and you may be able to see some arrows uh, right up the middle of the diagram those are flashing on and off to show that a, an algidonic signal is in fact emanating from the third box from the bottom. Each thing here can take us to another world. 
Among them is a display screen showing photos from Chilean factories, a marvel with a history as captivating as the images it shows. It all began with a trip to Davos. Yes, Davos. At the very first edition of what would later become the famous World Economic Forum. So while in Davos, Stefan Beer, then still a prominent management theorist, encounters an intriguing computer installation. It's a sort of a simulation game which shows photos to those playing it as a way of alerting them to the consequences of their actions. And this computer installation would stay with Stafford long after he left the Swiss mountains. A year or so later, it would inspire him to add this screen showing factory photos to this very room in Santiago. That's the weird nature of Allende's high-tech socialism. Somehow, it boldly mixes Dow's luxury with Santiago grit, all by way of a British management consultant. When Allende visits the room, the Santiago boys are keen observers of his every move. Raulio Espejo is there. He arrived there with plenty of time and was uh, very relaxed, sitting in one of the chairs and asking questions about uh, what, was all the, what were the, all the different screens about. Fernando Flores is there as well. He notes that the good politician that he was, Allende must have seen some rather non-conventional uses for this room. See, I believe Allende have a sense of politics, you know, like, then I said, this is a good idea that I can show that I am doing, uh, not only politics, I am doing something else. I believe that, that idea crossed his mind. This delightful cybernetic oasis is quite a slap in the face to the U.S. ambassador. Two years earlier, the ambassador declared that, and I'm quoting here, not a NATO bolt would be allowed to reach Chile under Allende. And look at all these fancy screens, projectors, chairs, keyboards. All of them are here. The Santiago boys are the ones having the last laugh here. A few days after Allende's visit, a visit that he missed because he already left for the UK, Stafford is a bundle of nerves. He is livid to have missed out on the action, of course, but more importantly, he's fretting over how he will get paid for the Cybersyn gig. You see, Corfo's New York bank accounts have been frozen, which is not that surprising, given Nixon's invisible blockade against the country. Stafford is thus left to ponder who's going to pick up the tab for all his hard work. Things are looking pretty black as he sends a telex to Raul. Dismayed about cash situation. If I come as planned, must finance own trip. Add to this cost existing debt and missing January income, and it means I have to raise £3,000. You know that reserves would run down last year for Chile's sake, so the problem is quite difficult. It does not breed confidence. What do you expect me to do? His wife Sally might have been right. The whole Chilean business could turn his reputation to ashes and even ruin his bank account. Perhaps it's time to reconsider this Chilean engagement altogether. And then there is more bad news. 
Now we've got the Observer, yes, the famous newspaper, shaking things up with their headline, Chile run by computer. And people can't stop talking about this article. The story even makes it into the CIA's press digest. Someone at the agency must have taken an interest in this project. The article presents CyberSyn as a groundbreaking economic initiative, noting that it's cloaked in secrecy. And the way the journalist describes it, it's like something straight out of a dystopian novel, with all the hallmarks of Big Brother. The good news is that Stafford, with his extensive business experience, knows how to handle the media. He's got a strategy in place already, and it all starts with his colleagues in Santiago going on the offensive. They just need to get some photos of workers in those ergonomic chairs. They need to make a bold move and bring the story to light. They have to be completely public about it. There is nothing Big Brother-ish about it, even remotely. But, to Stafford's disappointment, things don't quite pan out this way. The Observer might as well be a fly buzzing around Santiago for all the attention it's getting among the government officials. After all, Flores and Allende have taken their fair share of hits in the media, and given the unpopularity of Allende's government abroad, they keep coming. For them, such a story is no big deal. But for Stafford, things are different, and it's easy to see why. If you're trying to build a consulting career, working for Big Brother is not exactly a resume booster. And poor old Stafford has to make ends meet somehow. To this day, Raul Espejo regrets not doing more to burnish the project's reputation. He would have preferred that we actually came in his defense and that we were talking about these things. But Allende's got bigger fish to fry than worrying about media attacks. He's busy schooling Chilean workers who just can't grasp the brilliance of his leadership. He even moves the government to a textile factory for a few days. The Cybersyn team is also in attendance, eager to showcase their project. Unfortunately, Allende's remarks have everyone too preoccupied to focus on cybernetics. Allende encourages the workers to take a wider perspective. Is it worth pursuing higher wages if it ultimately leads to the downfall of his government? There are still workers who don't understand their responsibility, he tells them. They don't deserve to be called workers. That's what he says. Allende proceeds to remind them of the past. The past when their work was so alienating and boring. But are they now enjoying their newfound creative powers? Well, maybe they are. However, what good is creativity if it can't even buy them more wine and empanadas? as Allende himself has promised. This seems increasingly improbable since inflation is eroding their paychecks and the workers are losing interest in this revolution. It's easy to blame the minister in charge, of course, but fortunately, it's no longer our friend from Talca. Fernando's short-lived tenure as the economy minister lasts a mere two months. However, he's then reassigned to lead the Ministry of Finance. This move takes him even further away from the Cybersyn team. He's now much more preoccupied with topics like inflation. Media attacks on Cybersyn are the list of his problems. We have so many attacks. No one called me, oh, could are you doing this, that these people are telling this. When I was Minister of Finance, no one, I have one not second to deal with this issue. Others have a more critical view of Fernando's reluctance to defend Cybersyn. Does he even need it now that he's a top government minister? Fernando has always had a characteristic. 
According to his Italian advisor, Mario Grandi, Fernando enjoys the reputation of someone who always puts his own personal gain first. It's simply part of who he is. He would even go against his own ideas if it benefits him. And Cybersyn, let us be clear, is mostly his idea. Remember Carlos, the Brazilian dissident engineer stuck in London? Well, things are finally looking up for him. With the strike over and the coup threat receding, he's ready to face whatever challenges lie ahead. He's finally made up his mind. He's going to Santiago to join Cybersyn. And Carlos is most excited about this prospect. Of course, I took what we call the uh, Liberty Flight, going to Colombia, Peru, and then Chile, trying to avoid the Brazilian airspace. Who knows, the, the plane might be a failure and land in Brazil. That would be awful. His new co-workers couldn't have been happier. They're desperate for skilled individuals who share their convictions. And Carlos fits the bill perfectly. Not anyone would join the project for the Unidad Popular. So they were starving of qualified people committed to the project and uh, somehow politically motivated. So they, uh, they said, great, come. Carlos is a numbers guy. He watches over the vital signs of each factory, the same signs that make up that quantified flowchart that we discussed before. Remember how Stafford was amazed by how these charts can teach complex concepts to the workers? And how beautiful those charts looked thanks to Gibbon Siepe and his team? Well, those charts don't just appear out of thin air. The Cybersyn engineers have to go to the factories, they talk to people there, they watch what they do, and they end up picking up to 10 indicators, indicators that would roughly describe what is really going on. Then those indicators get monitored with software, computers, models, all of that. And Carlos has to figure out if changes in those indicators, whether they're going up, down, so forth, means something that's worth worrying about. Often, these changes might just be noise and statistical flukes. And that's precisely what Cybersyn software will determine for sure. The media crisis triggered by the Observer article has, of course, made things much worse. But Stafford refuses to let it bring him down. He has big plans to enlighten the world about Cybersyn, and he's planning to do it during his upcoming lecture in Brighton, in the UK. It promises to be a media event in its own right. And to help him on his quest, he's reaching out to a powerful publication. Who knows, perhaps they will help him score some positive press. I was writing for New Scientist. This is a magazine which is read by scientists and engineers and so on. This is the voice of Joe Hanlon, then a technology editor at the magazine. Trying to say to these people, science is not neutral. Science is how you what you choose to research, what you choose to develop, and then how you choose to use it. You have power. He goes to see Stafford at his mansion right before the big lecture. This was seen as a project to support Yendi, which under normal circumstances I would have been highly sympathetic to. The interview takes an unexpected turn right off the bat when Stafford declares that Britain lacks the wherewithal to tackle a project like Cybersyn. He even takes it a step further by calling his fellow Brits ship. Yes, that's the very word he's using. And it only gets stranger from there. As it was not a friendly interview. And it was clear that I began to raise some questions. 
Joe Hanlon views cyberscene through a lens of radical leftist militancy, perceiving it as excessively top-down, elitist, and quite disconnected from the masses. It's probably how someone from Mir, that radical leftist Chilean movement, would view a project like this. The whole key was that what Stafford Beer was doing, and he, what he said he was doing, was in secret. So that he was not using it as a mobilizing tool. Of course, Allende may have been better served by a grassroots cybernetic social network, a proto-Twitter or Facebook of some kind, than this top-down operations room of Project Cybersyn. But sadly, it wasn't really an option in 1973. And for radical leftists, including Joe Hanlon from The New Scientist, this lack of mobilization is what doomed not just this project, but Allende's regime as a whole. Unless you have community support, unless you mobilize, you can't work in secret because you don't have a base. And what the CIA understood is that they could do it better than Stafford Beer could. Joe Hanlon doesn't mean swords in his two articles, and they aren't exactly what Stafford had in mind when he sought out positive media coverage. Few people, Joe writes, have ever had as much power to give as Stafford Beer. He has chosen to give it not to the people, but to a government he approves of. End of quote. His verdict? Stafford Beer is the, and I'm quoting, the super technocrat of them all. Well, that must hurt. So when the big day of the lecture comes, Stafford doesn't really know what to expect. As he pulls up to the Brighton lecture in his luxurious Rolls Royce, he finds himself in a hotbed of radicalism. This town is buzzing with students like Mike Hales, students who are researching the very politics of experts such as Stafford Beer. In Mike's eyes, these scientists are in denial about the immense power that they possess. I'm a working class kid I grew up in a declining industrial town in, in Yorkshire. Um, I didn't know anything about the middle class uh, professional people. Mike Hale sits among the sea of attendees at that Brighton lecture. It's not the most welcoming of spaces. So it was in, it was in big lecture theater at, in the Polytechnic, in Brighton Polytechnic. Um, huge, great, cavernous, conventional kind of hall high stage, dark. As Mike takes in his surroundings, he can't help but feel a sense of gloominess, gloominess that permeates the lecture hall itself. You know, I wouldn't have liked to have been a speaker in that place, but uh, that's not a thing that would daunt Stafford Beer because he's a big man with a big voice and lots of charisma. So, you know, he would just be projecting like mad out into that, into that space, uh, being completely messianic. Um, with his message about his, how he got a machine for saving the world. The lecture goes off without a hitch, but the question and answer session quickly becomes contentious. Vanilla Beer is among those in attendance. It was crowded and it, was, it had a very hostile reception. I mean, I had no idea what was going on, but people were um, uh, quite aggressive with him from the floor, you know, from uh, question time. Vanilla recalls that some members of the audience found the Cybersyn story to be implausible, even questioned whether it was just a figment of her father's imagination. I just remember there was some 
um, doubt about the, the existence of the whole project. And some woman seemed to be saying that she'd uh, been there and it hadn't happened or something. So as the Q&A session heats up, a British academic, who's also an advisor to the Chilean government, poses an almost insulting question to Stafford. I remember Stafford saying, you know, you wait till you have enemies, darling. They're telling me that, that uh, I never did any of this. And, you know, he had a great deal of proof that he had been in Chile. Stafford's encounter with this academic will have long-lasting repercussions. Her insinuations about cybersyn will even come back to haunt him when he returns to Chile. Now that the lecture is over, Stafford and Mike Hales retire to a nearby pub where Mike hopes to interview Stafford for his dissertation. And Stafford uses the occasion to deliver a pitch that Mike has heard countless times before. As Mike notes, consultants like Stafford just love to emphasize their outsider status. Basically, their concern was that society didn't take enough notice of science. Uh, and they wanted to see a society that was run on more scientific lines. It's a tale as old as time. These radical scientists think that they have all these groundbreaking ideas, ideas that could shake up the entire system. But as their work gains more attention, many of these experts succumb to a dangerous temptation. The temptation to work with the corporations or the military. And before you know it, they are no longer the edgy radicals they once were. They were the latest players in that game of, of being radical, but only until um, their practice became mainstream. Mike's conclusions echo those of Joe Hanlon. Cybersyn is conceived and executed by Chile's technical elite, with no real concern for the workers' own interests. Beer was given an opening in Chile because there was a large professional managerial class of, of scientists and engineers in Chile who not only had the ear of the President Allende, he was a member of that class. Mike has a point here. Foyende's ideas do sometimes smack of technocracy. Perhaps it's his background in Madison that has left a residual influence. Joshua Friend-String explains how this technocratic and scientific dynamic played out in one peculiar domain, that of food and nutrition. Allende was part of a generation of uh, uh, medical experts, uh, part of a group of, of a scientific community, particularly in the area of nutrition, that tried to uh, uh, make food simply a, uh, uh, an agglomeration of micronutrients or of uh, calories, of protein, of you know, vitamins, and essentially lost sight of the essential cultural and social significance that particular foods had uh, throughout Chilean history. The government's much-touted nutrition campaign, a campaign aimed to have people eat more frozen fish, offers a very good illustration of the issue. Despite the campaign's best efforts, the public remains extremely reluctant to consume this frozen fish. It's another case of government paternalism falling somewhat short of expectations. The language of science, at least the language of science alone, is not enough to change entrenched cultural attitudes. This fish is not exactly a culinary hit. 
It is certainly not uh, anything like beef, and even though both are very high in protein, uh, it's something that uh, most Chilean consumers are quite averse to actually purchasing uh, and uh, uh, serving to their families. The government, including the Santiago Boys, of course, fails to appreciate this subtleness. Yes, sure, they're scientists and engineers, not cultural anthropologists. But still, some more attention to the subtler aspects of human psychology would probably have earned them deeper respect among the working classes. The critique of cybersyn that is emerging from the British left is not to be dismissed so easily. Is Stafford's cybernetic wonderland truly empowering for the workers? Or is it merely a technocratic charade? While Stafford's vision of popular power is certainly something to admire, it also has its share of political blind spots. Doesn't it reduce workers to trivial positions? Are they supposed to be knowledge contributors to his flowcharts and nothing more? Or mere button pushers who are stuck in the operations room? The whole setup feels more like a superficial nod to democracy, not a system that genuinely values workers' wants and needs. No wonder Stafford's memos to the team come across as patronizing. Show the workers how to make quantified flowcharts. The thing is immediately obvious. They can do it. They will see its value, because it is a good way of thinking about the plant. But is this thing immediately obvious? And is this really a good way of thinking about the plant? Says who? Another question that comes to mind is this. How much control do the workers have over the design of CyberSyn? For one, Stafford Beer is the one deciding how many chairs and screens go into the operations room. He also decides what buttons they can push. But what if they don't need that room at all? What if they have better ideas for using Chile's scarce computer resources? But Stafford, of course, doesn't really ask workers for their opinions on these issues. No, he prefers to answer all these questions himself, sitting by his goldfish pool in his mansion and assuming that he knows everything. But is that really so? On a more serious note, Stafford and Allende do share a common belief in the need to guide workers, to guide them towards their own liberation. But while Allende acknowledges the political nature of his leadership, workers, after all, can get rid of him anytime they want, Stafford presents his technical expertise as apolitical, eternal, and grounded in science. His advice on restructuring the workplace is supposed to be self-evidently valid and true. But how do we know what makes a good workplace? Is it something that we can measure and test with scientific methods, with cybernetics, and all these other techniques he's using? Or is it something that depends solely on our values and our interests? And who gets to decide what counts as a good workplace to begin with? So, let's face it. Stafford doesn't really ponder all the politics behind cybersyn. To him, cybernetics is the panacea for all worker issues, and they will certainly embrace it the moment they realize just how good it is. At best, he's quite a bit naive, as that memo we cited earlier suggests. We have started a process by which the workers will ask us for cybersyn. If a worker is operating an old-fashioned machine and he hears about a better one, he usually demands it. Then it is not imposed on him by technocrats. Other members of the team are also not really inquiring into the project's politics. 
Harul Espejo admits as much today. All the arguments of Cybersyn and the, all the, shall we say, the ideology that is behind Cybersyn is something that uh, wasn't clear to Stafford or to me or to anybody else. That was uh, clearly something where he was weak and if he was weak in that, I was several times weaker. So it's no shock that Stafford Beer shrugs off Mike's criticisms in that Brighton pub. When I was questioned out, then uh, yeah, he put out his last cigar and went outside and got into his Rolls Royce um, and drove off back to the stockbroker belt in the Thames Valley. But despite putting up a brave face, Stafford is more wounded by that lecture than he cares to admit. In retrospect, this is how he would reflect on that experience. Perhaps the reputation that what I was doing in Chile was a piece of mad technocracy, centralizing all decisions and betraying the people by computer, began with that false lecture. I have been in trouble with this canard ever since. Well, next time he's going to speak to radicals, he should probably leave his Rolls Royce behind and rent a Volkswagen Beetle. Meanwhile, back in Santiago, the pressure on Allende reaches a fever pitch as he faces yet another political inferno. Remember Mapu, the political party that is a crucial element in his coalition and something of a heaven for the Santiago boys? Well, now it's torn apart by a bitter dispute over ideology and tactics. Fernando Flores and the moderates push for a continued alliance with Allende, while the radicals demand a more worker-oriented approach. The usual conflict, of course, that has been tearing apart Allende's administration since the very beginning. Here's how Gabriel Rodriguez remembers those intense debates. The problem was that inside the MAPU, all the, all the groups of the militants from the South, mainly from Concepcion, influenced obviously by Mir, were in the positions similar to the socialists. The Popular Unity Coalition is of course still popular, but it's hard not to notice that there is less and less unity in its ranks. But amidst all this chaos and uncertainty, another glimmer of hope emerges and from America, of all places. The Senate is finally ready to hold hearings on ITT and CIA's involvement in Chile. So tensions predictably are running high. Behind the scenes, there is a growing sense of unease, with many inside the US government worrying about the fallout. Just how much classified information would be revealed about America's own role in first preventing Allende's victory, and then in destabilizing his government. Nixon, however, won't let that pass. The White House lawyers are using every trick to block the release of the most sensitive documents. Documents that could compromise Kissinger, Nixon, and the CIA. The secret documents, argued Nixon's lawyers, are protected by the so-called executive privilege. The public is not entitled to see them. But let us not forget the irony of the situation here. While Chile is being criticized for the secretive project Cybersyn, Nixon is invoking executive privilege to keep his own administration's discussions fully confidential. Who is the real big brother here? 
As the long-awaited hearings begin, it's not all good news for Beer and Allende. Many in the American capital greet their projects with plenty of skepticism, if not outright opposition. Around this time, something else happens. A powerful Washington insider launches a blistering attack on Cybersyn, and he does so on the pages of The New Scientist, where he submits a letter. So this prominent figure at the National Bureau of Standards doubts the very existence of Cybersyn. And even if it does exist, he argues, it's nothing short of monsters. But Stafford is not taking this attack lying down. He publishes a bold response in the same pages. He's not just a data banker or a matrix inverter, he insists. He's a cybernetician. And he's not going to be dismissed or undermined so easily. He writes, and I quote, Perhaps it's intolerable to sit in Washington, D.C. and to realize that someone else got there first, in a Marxist country, on a shoestring. End of quote. The initial public exchange within Stafford and this Washington critic has now moved to private correspondence. Here's Stafford writing to that scientist. Please stop being so unpleasant and hear a few facts. Chile is trying to get its economy running in the face of intense opposition and even sabotage. Allende's policy is to do this by devolving power as fast as possible to the people. Stafford goes out of his way to clarify the challenges that are standing in Allende's way. How does a group of workers run a factory? When its communications have been broken, its records stolen, and it has no orthodox management cadre? How can factories get computer assistance when there is no foreign exchange to buy them computers? How can science be handed to the people instead of being used to exploit them? But just when it seemed like things couldn't get any worse, this Washington critic commits a major faux pas. He compares Stafford and Fernando to this other tech mavens, the much-hated bosses of ITT. This sends Beer into a rage, and he responds in kind. You have no more basis to compare Floris and Beer with Janine and McCone than I have to compare you with Stalin. The back and forth between Stafford and this critical scientist, the so-called Stalin from Washington, stops shortly thereafter. It's hard to believe, but some challenge Cybersyn's existence even after seeing the operations room with their own eyes. One visiting American professor is particularly baffled. Ruli Spechel is puzzled by his reaction. He came saying, everything you are saying is a lie. That couldn't have happened. And uh, <laughs> I thought, Christ, this guy is not a very friendly one. Some of Allende's own officials are starting to have doubts about the practicality of this project. Among them is Sergio Bitar, then the Minister of Mining. Interesting innovation, absolutely disconnected with the reality and not being possible to apply under conditions of high disruptions in the whole process. Sergio is part of the wider universe of the Santiago boys, and he's even worked at CORE for early in his career. He knows quite a few things about planning. And as he gazes upon the intricate web of wires and machines that make up Cybersyn, he couldn't help but marvel at this cutting-edge technologies. 
the complexity of the system is staggering, but what purposes does it serve? As Sergio contemplates its application to his own managerial routine, he finds himself at a bit of a loss. In a chilly, racked by turmoil and upheaval, he cannot really grasp how it could be of any practical use to anyone. I knew that that was an exotic experiment in a quite different reality. It's a sobering realization. Three months have passed since I end this visit, yet the operations room remains eerily quiet. Does anyone really need it at all? Raul's telex message to Stafford drives the point home. Useless is to tell you that the operations room is not being used. That's what he says. Worst of all, even the chair's ergonomic armrests are left untouched, without a whiskey glass anywhere inside. Just when Stafford thought that he had survived the media storm, the British radicals go for the jugular and prepare their final push. Now they're attacking CyberSyn in another publication, Science for People. This magazine, a breeding ground for radical scientists and engineers, holds nothing back. They even call CyberSyn, and I quote, a computerized model of tyranny. Ouch. CyberSyn, they argue, and again I'm quoting, will concentrate power in the hands of those who control the control room. Mike Hales remembers that stinging critique. It was basically, what about the workers? Yeah. Beard doesn't seem to realize that he's not empowering working people. He doesn't seem to realize that he's just empowering the management. Stafford's friend Jonathan Rosenhaft is probably feeling a little red-faced. After all, he's the one to have brokered the initial meeting between Stafford and the Science for People crowd, the encounter that led to that ill-fated article. They saw Stafford as some kind of big capitalist who drank whiskey from a hip flask chain smoked cigars, had a Rolls Royce, had a big stockbroker belt house, and all of those sort of things. So they had some, possibly some tension against it. Anyhow. The Santiago boys are feeling frustrated with the latest drama. But this time, it's harsh critique coming from fellow scientists, from fellow engineers. It's a critique that they cannot just ignore. Carlos Sena is still fired up about that article 50 years later. They're idealistic, thinking about science for people uh, in a broad way, in a, in, a, in a broad sense, in a broad sense, in, in, in no concrete sense at all. They knew nothing about the terrain itself, the ground in which we were. Even Stafford's wife, Sally, is upset about the article. And she writes to him saying that it makes her want to vomit. Stafford responds to the article with another fierce letter, suggesting that science for people should be renamed No Science for People or science for people in theory only. The latter also contains gems like this. If, at this stage of human development, our only way of preserving liberty is to be so inefficient that no one, them or us, can exert any regulation on society, then our species is doomed. Only a managerial revolution, such as I am trying to mount in Chile, offers any hope. Such arrogance is exactly what Science for People crowd is calling out in Stafford. Who does this wealthy Brit think he is, leading a socialist revolution in Chile? And who says that this revolution has to be managerial? And why is it Chile's only hope? Just because Stafford's hubris has a touch of cybernetics to it, 
doesn't make it any less repulsive. The media coverage of Stafford's work for Allende is also causing some ripples among the British elites. Like the leftist radicals, they too are scratching their heads over Sabison. But of course they're confused for entirely different reasons. We all looked upon him as a socialist. This is Ian, Stafford's brother, who rubbed shoulders with the upper crust at those swanky dinner parties. He had cut out for himself a particular kind of figure which um, was clearly not part of British society itself. And it was clear to us that he was happier in this extraordinary society which he found himself in in Chile. Ian, who's a sports fanatic, thinks he has come up with a perfect metaphor for Stafford's situation. He found a team to play with in Chile. He couldn't find a team to play with in England. Well, this is stretching it quite a bit. To be fair, not everyone on the Chilean team is enamored with Stafford. There are plenty who would love to see him go. Perhaps he has already overstayed his welcome in the country. Remember that academic from his Brighton talk? The one to have attacked Stafford during the Q&A? Stafford is convinced that she's still gunning for him, blabbering to her pals in the Chilean government that he's using Cybersyn only to pimp his own consulting gig. It isn't really a major offense in the dog-eat-dog business world, but for in the socialist supporters, it might seem like a cardinal sin. Who led this shameless capitalist vampire inside the socialist shrine? Just as the media whirlwind surrounding Cybersyn is beginning to fade, Chilean engineers come knocking on Stafford's door. They have some pressing questions. These engineers want Stafford to address the recent media criticism and to explain the project to their gremio. And he must do so in a big public talk, a talk that he fears will be a repetition of his disastrous lecture in Brighton. And of course it is. Here are Stafford's own recollections. The lecture should not have been given that I resisted giving it with all my might. The result was naturally disastrous. It was probably the worst address I ever made. Rulius Pecha was there too. These people were not uh, Marxist engineers, and uh, they were not understanding the arguments of the project, nor the ideological points. They were deeply shocked. They called me partisan, Stafford would recall later. This whole thing is starting to feel like yet another Monty Python sketch. The Science for People crowd are struggling to grasp Stafford's deeply confused political leanings. While his Chilean naysayers are convinced that he's a socialist radical, Someone who's abandoned all pretense of scientific neutrality to serve as Allende's lapdog. Ironically, Stafford has become an Allende-like figure, a figure besieged by opposing forces. The radicals find both of them too mild. The moderates and technocrats, on the other hand, are convinced that these are determined Marxists who are keen on overturning the world order. But unlike Stafford, Allende is a crafty politician. He knows how to straddle that divide. He even benefits from all this ambiguity. Stafford, on the other hand, won't tolerate anything of the kind. He veers deeper and deeper towards the radical pole, so much so that his plunge into ultra-leftism has left some wondering if he's in over his head. After all, what is this wealthy man doing playing the radical?
As the chorus of opposition to CyberSyn grows louder, Raul is pushing for Fernando to go public with the details of the project. Such interventions, he writes to Stafford, unquote, would open the mythical black box, which, adds Raul, is today's image of the project. But perhaps Fernando wants this mythical black box to remain closed. An aura of cybernetic mystique has never hurt anyone. As the project's father figure, perhaps he knows that the more enigmatic it appears, the more cultural capital he himself accumulates. There are other problems, too. The reality of Cybersyn's reception is harsher than Stafford may have anticipated, and the workers aren't exactly beating down Corfer's doors to get their hands on it. Raoul's assessment is that the workers, along with many other social groups familiar with the project, see Cybersyn as impractical and obscure. For them, it's an example of, and I'm quoting here, a refined technique alien to the country. Reality may be stronger than theory, as Allende himself claims, but theory so far is all that they've got. So amidst all this chaos, Stafford writes a scathing essay. He minces no words describing the project's results as utterly disastrous. The team, he says, is in shambles, with personal attacks taking the place of productive work. And to add insult to injury, Stafford has lost faith in the Chilean bureaucracy altogether. Yes, the very forces that are funding this project. I can see no way of practical change that does not immediately affect the organization of Corfo. I can see no way of practical change that does not very quickly damage the Chilean bureaucracy beyond repair. Without this change, the cybernetic revolution is in jeopardy. If there is no politically realistic proposal in this area, then the revolution is not feasible in its current form. Does it take more courage to be a cybernetician than to be a gunman? But what will the cyberneticians do when the real gunmen come out to play? Little does Stafford know that he isn't the only Brit with such a keen interest in Chile. Deep in the shadows of the British government, a secretive unit has been dedicated to undermining Allende's regime from the very start. It was basically designed as a propaganda unit within the Foreign Office uh, to counter the threat of a kind of global communism. This is Kevin John McEvoy, a British historian. He's an expert on the Information Research Department, or IRD. It wasn't just about combating com uh, global communism, it was also about combating any kind of threat to British, uh, British interests, British commercial interests, strategic interests, um, political interests abroad. And those working for this unit, the IRD, are not at all afraid to leverage the soft power of the British media. In fact, they do so in the Middle East, in the early 1950s, where they use one of Britain's most important cultural assets for their geopolitical purposes. The BBC Persia, on behalf of the British state, was consistently disseminating messages that the Iranian people were not capable of adequately using their own oil. It should come as no surprise that BBC played a crucial role in the 1953 Iranian coup, a coup that sabotaged the government's plan to nationalize oil reserves. In an effort to help that coup succeed, the BBC inserted an extra phrase into the regular broadcast. This is the call for the operatives in Iran to get going and to, to initiate the coup. 
So back then, IRD was a very powerful player. And it was just the beginning of the involvement in some of the most significant political upheavals of the 20th century. In Guatemala, the IRD laid the groundwork for the CIA-led regime change, using a combination of psychological tactics and propaganda. Nine years later, they would provide critical support to the CIA's Operation Mongoose in Cuba. You've heard all about it in an earlier episode. And later, they would also back the anti-Jango groups in Brazil. After that 1964 coup, they would go on to take their efforts in Brazil to a whole new level, training Brazilians in brutal interrogation techniques. The same techniques that activists like the Brazilian engineer Carlos Senna would later be decrying in the anti-torture reports. So, as you may have guessed by now, shortly before and after Allende's election, this unit, IRD, was active in Chile. The main goal? Destroy Allende's reputation. Inside their broader network was a CIA-funded company called Forum World Features, the Cambridge Analytica of its day. I discovered it while talking to Andy Beckett, who is a columnist for The Guardian. He wrote a very interesting book about British-Chilean relations. And while doing research for that book, Andy scored an interview with the elusive founder of Foreign World Features. Once the initial coverage of the regime, which had been positive, began to fade, the British right-wing press and, if you like, the more clandestine um, press like Foreign World Features started to disseminate these ideas about Allende as a kind of Soviet stooge, essentially. One day, Andy paid a visit to his uncle, who at the time was working as a journalist at the Times of London. He had material that he'd been given, um, or had been sent him at the Times, that was essentially material from Forum World Features, giving a kind of Cold War perspective on the IND regime, essentially a form of black propaganda. So that's what other British consultants were doing in Chile during IND's time. They were not there to promote the revolution of red wine and empanadas. Now they flew from London to Santiago to put a bloody end to it. But with so much secret money flowing to discredit Allende and his government in the British press, is it a mere coincidence that so many of the London-based media outlets are attacking Project Cybersyn? This, sadly, will probably remain a mystery until at least we see more of the still-classified official documents. Stafford, of course, doesn't know that there is the sustained British effort to take down Allende. So he is naturally shocked by how the British media discuss Chile and its president. He finds their hostility toward Allende nothing short of scandalous. We have a tape of him, unfortunately not of the best quality, voicing those frustrations. Now, the whole of the rich world were being told that he was a disaster, that his policies would be inflationary, and all the rest of it. I have never seen a more misrepresented thing in the media in all my life. It was outrageous. Chile has shown him something that Stafford Beer never expected to find out. What it feels like to be on the receiving end of a British civilizing mission. And now he hates it more than anything. Stafford's path through life never pointed to this moment. He was meant to work against Allende, not to help him stay afloat. In other words, this is a man cut out for something like IRD's propaganda mission, and not for building cybernetic socialism. 
and yet he ends up on the other side of the barricades. It's interesting how his life took a most dramatic turn in the late 1960s, long before that fateful letter from Fernando Flores. As a high-ranking executive at IPC, a publishing empire with links to the CIA itself, he was caught off guard when his boss tried and failed to bring down the British government. With time, those events became a notorious chapter in British history, with some still unable to believe that IPC's top boss, the press baron Cecil King, may have been pushing for a coup. Whatever it is Cecil King was trying to do, he failed. As his protégé, Stafford knew that his days at IPC were numbered. And he was right. Soon, he was shown the door. And the third, though, Stafford became a consultant, eventually finding himself working for the very man that the CIA had been trying to discredit. But under only slightly different circumstances, he may have emerged as IPC's liaison with the CIA. Or perhaps something even worse. The times of the Cold War were truly, truly weird. In the end, RITT and IPC, the two tech giants of that epoch, really that different? Perhaps that Washington scientist comparing Stafford Beer to John McCone isn't so far off. So as the climate in Santiago heats up, the British propaganda machine also gets into full swing. And Stafford is about to get caught up in the action, as BBC's flagship show has expressed an interest in doing a segment on Allende. As a respected member of the General Advisory Council of BBC, and someone with very close connections to Allende, Stafford naturally agrees to speak to the BBC crew when they arrive in Santiago. So he meets with the producer at his favorite Sheraton bar, and he's outraged by the illogical bias of his compatriot. By the way, the two clips that follow were made in a Welsh pub a long time ago. So apologies for the sound quality. And then he said, what, now, what are your views? I said, well, oh, that's a cut for a start. This is absolutely irrelevant. That is, that is foreign office propaganda. I will now tell you the truth. Have another pistol, see? And I talked to him for about four hours. The emotionally charged discussions at the Sheraton are ultimately futile. And they just did the thing as originally planned before they left England. Of course they did. And I'll never forgive him for this. And the only feedback I had was that the wife of the Chilean ambassador told me that she watched this program and broke down and cried and cried and cried and couldn't be consoled. Everywhere Stafford looks, he finds himself at loggerheads with one group or another. Corfo is not his cup of tea. The Chilean engineers aren't buying what he's selling. The British leftists are giving him the cold shoulder, and now he's even getting into it with the BBC. Management consulting is good, sure, but has this man tried anger management? So while Stafford contemplates the respective merits of cyberneticians and gunmen, Danger looms as the real gunman make their move against Allende. A report is sent to Henry Kissinger around that time, and it contains news that is far from uplifting to anyone who's hoping that cybernetic synergy might still help Allende. Elements of the Chilean Air Force have worked out a plan to overthrow Allende. It envisions seizure of the presidential palace by Air Force troops, supported by an armored battalion of the Army plus helicopters. Three commanders of key army units in or around Santiago are said to be backing this effort. 
It's a race against time for Stafford, Allende, and the Santiago boys. As the enemy closes in on them, they have to make some tough choices. Who can they trust? What are they willing to sacrifice? And how will they fight back? Next, on the Santiago boys. A crisis looms over Chile as Allende's empanada revolution faces a critical flour shortage. And the dream of technological sovereignty seems more and more elusive, at least for our cybernetic team. But they have bigger problems to worry about. Allende's enemies are closing in, and the Santiago boys are giving orders to dismantle the operations room. And they want to do it before it falls into the wrong hands the hands of the coup plotters, or the military, or Patria Libertad. Meanwhile, Fernando Flores studies counterinsurgency manuals, and some mutinous tanks do surround the presidential palace. And there are also hints that a shadowy figure has been plotting to end global communism, and to do so with high-tech weapons. And he can't wait for Allende's regime to fall to implement his plans. All of this and more in the next episode of The Santiago Boys. Stay with us. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. The Santiago Boys is a co-production of Cora Media and Post-Utopia. Writing, research, development, and presentation, Evgeny Marozov. Music main theme, Luca Michele. Audio editing and post-production, Matteo Licciotti. Music supervisor, Luca Michele. Post-production producer, Matteo Salsa. The people who've been helping me with organizing, recording, and processing hundreds of interviews are unfortunately too many to name here. But I'd like to extend special thanks to Chiara De Leone, Ekaid Cancela, Nikolai Maximchuk, and Matteo Miavaldi. All of them have helped me in more than one way. Full credits are also on the podcast website, the-santiago-boys.com.